This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. I am talking to you from Florida once again in my car. Um, I tried to do it from the beach, but the wind and the bugs were a problem. Um, I gotta say, I'm super grateful to be here in Florida. Uh, it's really great for my wife and daughter and for the family. It's lovely to be at the beach. I'm not a huge beach guy. Um, and I got to say, you know, this is a great time of year to be in Florida. The weather is pretty good. Um, but when it comes to sun-drenched places, I will take Southern California any day. There's something about that desert climate that's um, less uh, pestilential. And, uh, um, in fact, this sort of raises a longstanding peeve. I'm sure I've talked about it before on the podcast, but there is this, uh, this argument that comes up every now and then when California is not in a financial crisis or when it manages to, um, narrowly avoid, uh, going bankrupt, you'll get some progressives pointing out in this sort of precursor of modern monetary theory nonsense. They'll say, oh, see... Uh, California's success proves the superiority of the California model. And you can be progressive and have sort of a Scandinavian-level interference in um, the economy in terms of regulation and entitlements and this and that and the other thing. Um, And this proves that it works. Now, I'm not going to get into the um, weeds on California budgeting uh, as much as there's a, you know, a, a... demand for that kind of pure podcast goodness. Um, But, you know, the the thing I always complain about about that is that, you know, one of the natural advantages that California has is it's got incredible weather in a handful of cities that people, that rich people and upper middle class people are willing to pay a premium to live in. Uh, When D.C., has a nice spring day or a nice fall day, and it, and it does from time to time. D.C. has two really pretty good seasons. It has a good half a spring and good half a fall. So I guess that adds up to one whole season. Um, I'll often say to, like, my wife, you know, what, 
what percentage of our income would we pay if we could have this weather year round? Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a real number for me, at least, you know, it'd be like 10%. Um, you know, I would pay a premium to live someplace if I could do what I do for a living where you had that classic kind of Southern California weather for a huge chunk of the year. And I always like, you know, <laughs> like to ask, would you, uh, do you think the California model, however you want to define it would work in North Dakota or Minnesota? Um, you know, you have to be a place that has, you know, certain natural benefits, uh, to living there that people are willing to pay a premium for. And they, and they, and they do. Um, and, uh, anyway, it's just a little peeve of mine. So, uh, no great plan today. I just sent off a draft to the G file. I opened up with more Biden stuff, which I'm now officially tired of. Um, I got a lot of interesting feedback from my Wednesday G file. Uh, for those of you who aren't, uh, paid members of the dispatch, uh, a brief summary. Um, I had written a first draft of that. I almost never write first drafts of the G file in terms of like here, like the day before or anything like that. But I did because just my schedule was either write write most of it on Tuesday afternoon or don't write it at all. And I sent a draft as I often do to my wife, who's a really top notch editor um, and, uh, and a writer of considerable accomplishment in her own right. She does different kind of writing than I do for the most part. You know, she's primarily a ghost writer, which I cannot do. Um, I learned, sorry for the tangent, but that's the nature of the beast. One of the reasons I got out of being a television producer is I hated writing for somebody else's voice. Um, I just wasn't particularly good at it. I wasn't terrible at it. I, mean, I think I have the chops to do it, but there's just certain kind of writing that you either enjoy or you don't. And if you don't enjoy it, it shows. And um, TV writing, particularly TV sort of news-ish writing or documentary writing, which I did, you know, you're, you're not just a slave to the person who's actually going to be speaking the words, but to the medium itself. You got to arrange um, the words to fit with the pictures. And, you know, I used to say, I hate front-loading nouns, but when you, <laughs> you know, you, you're doing sort of a newsy segment about something, you want the first word out to, to jibe with the thing that's on the screen. And it just wasn't my gift. And anyway, my wife, she can do that kind of thing. And she's made a good living being a ghostwriter and, um, a speechwriter for people where that's all you do, but it's not me. Anyway, so I sent it to her and she did not like it. And uh, she didn't like it for interesting reasons, which I'll get to in a second. But uh, the basis of my argument was um, that amidst all of the screaming about the Biden allegations, um, there's just a lot of confusion, categorical confusion about what we're actually talking about. And I talked about this a bunch with Charlie Cook, so I won't reprise all of it here. But, you know, um, if, you're, if your only lodestar is for, or your only yardstick for how bad the coverage of the Biden allegations is, is the Kavanaugh hearings, well, then they're, they're, you're going to get yourself in sort of a logical mess. Because on the first hand, the actual coverage of the Biden stuff was objectively better than what they did in the Kavanaugh in the Kavanaugh thing, which was a complete 
I don't want to curse on this thing, so instead of a S show, I'll say a fecal festival. And it was just a hot mess. It was devoid of professional standards of conduct. It was full of slander and rumor mongering and rumor, you know, rumors were used to confirm other rumors. Um, and it was done in large part in either uh, coincidental or deliberate lockstep with a, an agenda of the Democratic Party to block the Kavanaugh nomination. It was grotesquely unfair to Kavanaugh and it didn't uphold due process. And I agree with my friends on all of that. Um, you know, National Review had a good editorial about all of that, but that's not what people are saying. People are, a lot of people, particularly if you follow Twitter and the sort of Trump world talking points about this, the Trump people aren't in fact accusing Biden of sexual assault. They're saying that the media is protecting him and that that's fair, uh, to a certain extent. They were reluctant to cover this. They do have a double standard based on Kavanaugh. Um, but the thing is, is like, if, if, if your concern is just the double standard, then um, you should, you know, at least acknowledge that the way they're covering Biden, even if it's motivated through partisan, you know, reluctance, the idea of like nailing down the story correctly, of, of checking out the allegation, of interviewing you know, corroborating and, and discrediting witnesses and all that kind of stuff. That's more like the way it should operate. Um, but instead, the, the Kavanaugh thing looms so large that if you <clears throat> don't pay close attention, you could be forgiven for thinking that some people think it's unfair that the media wasn't as bad covering Biden as it was covering Kavanaugh. And that can't be anybody's position. Similarly, if... You take the allegations against Biden seriously and think they're disqualifying, you have to answer the question, um, well, what about the, all the allegations? And there are a lot of allegations that uh, line up pretty well with, you know, contemporary witnesses, with patterns of behavior about Donald Trump. And you don't hear anybody actually condemning sexual, well, I shouldn't say that. You, you don't hear a lot of the people in this sort of hothouse argument of sound bites and tweets saying that the underlying accusation, if true, is disqualifying because that creates a problem for Trump. And so instead, it's like, you know, a ship at sea with no points on, you know, points on the map to try or stars in the sky to triangulate by. And it's just everything smashing into everything. And it, it bothers me. And I just wrote this piece to sort of figure out, you know, what are we actually talking about? And um, anyway, I've I talked about that a bunch with Charlie. I've, I, I wrote a syndicated column about this. I wrote the GFA about it, so I don't want to dwell on it. But um, my wife's objection, which I thought was interesting, is, you know, my wife is very supportive of me and the positions I take and all of these kinds of things. And she thinks I've done a good and, you know, I'll say it because she's my wife, a brave and admirable thing about not going, uh, you know, not going crazy pro-Trump or crazy anti-Trump. I know listeners think I'm crazy anti-Trump, but if you compare me to the people I think are crazy anti-Trump, I just don't think that's the case. Um, but um, she, you know, she said this is just too clever by half. And um, by doing all this lo logic chopping and trying to come up with something clever to say, um, that no one else is saying, 
you're basically minimizing the real outrages here and that you have to think of the political context that we're in. And I replied, and it's one of our arguments about this. Yeah, but, you know, haven't you been listening? I don't want to do politics that way. I don't want to be part of this thing I've been talking about forever about um, being a de facto party guy where I'm, you know, making arguments based upon whether or not they will help or hurt one party. And she, you know, her view is, I get that, but you're still in a political moment. And there are a lot of people who agree with you or agree with the dispatch um, who um, just don't want to hear this right now. And it seems like what you're trying to do is shoehorn um, an anti-Trump argument or something like that into what is a fairly straightforward example of outrageous media bias and double standards from the left. I get it. The fact that she says it means a lot to me. No offense to the commenters, but she's my wife. Um, but I just, you know, wanted to make the argument. And, and, but she does raise the point that even if I am, you know, pretty objectively, you know, and earnestly trying not to be this, you know, de facto opposition researcher, which a lot of conservatives, including me in the past, have fallen fairly comfortable into, um, you know, even if I, you know, take that position, you still have to like sort of recognize the moment that you're in and not just be contrarian for contrarianism's sake. And I will say, if I seem that way, then it's a mistake because I really hate contrarianism for contrarianism's sake. I think it's one of, and I'm sure I've written this a bunch of times, one of the most um, purely distilled forms of intellectual asininity where rather than actually be accused of going along with the conventional wisdom, um, even when the conventional wisdom is right, you'd rather have some take that goes against it to prove your bona fides or your cleverness or stuff like that. I hate that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it was one of my great peeves with, with Bill Sapphire, who was a great columnist, but he he would actually begin columns saying, I'm going to take a contrarian take. And it was very clear he was taking it because it was a contrarian take, not necessarily because he believed it. And that approach, um, I think, is as intellectually dishonest as any other kind of approach. You know, unless you're just sort of trying to raise issues and play devil's advocate or something, which I would say in my defense, <clears throat> that was a little of what I was trying to do in just trying to clear up all of these confused lines of argument. Um, and as I wrote in my syndicated column, no matter how egregious the media double standard is or how egregious democratic behavior was with Kavanaugh, that doesn't mean um, that Joe Biden doesn't have to answer certain questions because of his actual stated policy preferences and because he's actually applying for a really important job where he's going to enforce the laws of the land. And even if the media got everything right, he would still have to answer those questions or he should have to answer those questions. So anyway, enough of all of that. Um, uh, where to go? Oh, so, but this sort of raises this, this other thing I'm getting a lot from people. Um, you know, I get in these fights on Twitter or an email from people and they'll say, okay, well, who are you going to vote for? Who are you going to support? And um, again, I know I sound like a broken record on this, at least I feel like I do. I don't think 
that in my line of work or how I define my line of work, how I vote for someone therefore requires any kind of, anything that's called, could be called support. Um, there is this strange sort of choose your own adventure kind of thinking um, where if you admit or decide, whichever, that you're going to vote for X, then therefore I have to write in ways and speak in ways um, aimed at persuading other people to vote for X. And I get that. And that's a perfectly legitimate position to have. And there are, I would say the vast majority of people have something like that position. And I don't. I really don't. Um, part of it is I don't really care very much about my vote. Um, I can afford to not care about my vote because my vote where I live doesn't matter. But, um, you know, if I ran a widget factory and someone said, who are you going to vote for? And I said, oh, I'll vote for Trump. Um, that doesn't mean I should therefore like organize my widget factory in ways for the benefit of Donald Trump. Um, particularly if I don't own the widget factory, you know, you have a certain amount of obligation to simply run your business the way that is best for shareholders, um, or the ownership or whoever it is, and not sort of use the institution as a, an extension of your political preferences. This was the way a lot of people understood these other realms of life was that not only was it not right to sort of use your personal political agenda, use your institution for your personal political agenda. It was actually a danger to your institution. You know, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily a great thing for a business to be associated with one party or another party. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the NRA is in such a trouble these days is that it became for understandable, which not, and you know, understandable is not the same thing as excusable. But for understandable reasons, it became more and more an adjunct of the Republican Party. Um, and there was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy nature of it. The more it aligned itself with mobilizing Republican voters, the more the Democrats got permission structure to be even more anti-gun and anti-NRA. It used to be that the NRA gave to members of both parties because they understood that the long-term prospects for gun rights in this country are more guaranteed if they are protected by both parties. And that's true of almost everything in American politics. The second one party gets ownership of something, it becomes a partisan thing and therefore subject to alteration, elimination, um, or whatever with an election or a series of elections. This is one of the reasons why I think a lot of the nationalist guys make a tactical error by wanting to, to, while arguing simultaneously that nationalism is this great unifying thing and that it should be the sort of new brand of the Republican Party. Because in a, particularly in a time of intense partisan polarization, the more something becomes the brand of one party, the more the other side is going to reflexively reject it. Uh, that's why I would much prefer that, you know, the, par the Republican Party wasn't, how to put this? I want it to be a pro-free trade party, but free trade as a economic principle, you know, putting China issues aside, free trade as an economic principle 
would be much safer in this country if both parties were competing against one another about how free trade they could be. Um, instead, you and the same thing goes with abortion and all of these kinds of things. But anyway, back to me, um, you know, it's something like, and I don't want to do this alt-right thing about red pill and blue pill kind of thing, but there is this sort of tendency to argue that if I vote one way, that means I have to start writing columns to support my voting position um, and newsletters and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Not going to do it, not interested in doing it. Um, and I'll, I'll admit, if either of the two main party candidates were more attractive to me, maybe I would find that argument more compelling. Um, you know, I certainly would, uh, if it was like Bernie Sanders versus Mitch Daniels, I would carry a lot more water for Mitch Daniels than I am willing to do for Donald Trump. But in the situation that we're in, I don't think either candidate is worthy of my vote. I'm not going to vote for either of them. I don't care about all of your binary choice bullshit, um, particularly since I live in D.C. Um, uh, no one owns my vote. And even, but even if I were going to vote for one of them, I'm not going to go out and start saying things I don't believe or ignoring things that I think are important solely so um, I can do all, do my all for my party or my team. It's just, and, and to the extent I used to do that kind of stuff, you know, I, I do these vigorous personal inventories about all of it. Um, I'm not willing to condemn everything that I wrote or, or this, or, or the stuff that my friends continue to do along those lines, but I'm just at a place where I'm, I'm just not interested. I just want to make the arguments that I want to make. And if that's a, if that seems like a luxury, that's fine. Um, but that's where I am. Um, but there is this weird thing about voting that we have in this culture that gives it this sort of magical property that I just, um, I just, I, I don't feel it. And, um, and, I find it more, I just find it more, you know, I, I have this thing where, um, I try to like look at the world today and, and see what would be recognizable from 500 or 10,000 years ago. I talk about this all the time. Um, the way we treat the act of committing to a candidate, it, it, it feels pre-modern to me in some ways. There's this sort of there's this, as Kevin Williamson would put it, this idolatry thing embedded in there that I have been baptized or I've been converted. Um, I have, you know, I have cho chosen my path. I've chosen the chalice and the weird chalice Indiana Jones room or whatever it is. And that locks me into a set of behaviors. And I just find it really kind of fascinating. Um, anyway, more on that another time. Um, oh, so the other thing, that uh, um, I want to talk about a little bit, and I'm I, mostly because I want to look for, I want people to send me examples of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, right before the pandemic hit, I um, was supposed to be preparing for this big speech that I give every year at uh, this big conference that AEI does called World Forum. And in many ways, it's like the most important speech I give every year. I mean, I don't get paid extra for it or anything like that, but the audience is like a big deal. It's hugely important for me at AEI. It's full of, you know, the, any given year, 
you know, last year was my worst attended one in part because Jared spoke at the, uh, was speaking, Jared Kushner was speaking at the same time as me and an enormous number of people had never heard his voice until then. Um, and so for the first time in my life, I got to say unironically, you went to Jared? Um, anyway, but, uh, you know, on any given year, even last year, you know, they're going to be 150, 200 people, something like that. And it's, you know, members of the board of AEI. These are, you know, people like, you know, it's possible sometimes Rupert Murdoch would be there, that kind of thing, you know, just big, important people, a bunch of senators, and it's all off the record. And, um, the problem with it is I got to do new material every year. And one of the old rules, um, I learned from my old boss, Ben Wattenberg is that you can have a new speech or you can have a good speech and, um, coming up with something that, you know, my standard line about this was always that, cause they, they always want me to be funny and they want it to be, you know, interesting and original and, and insightful and all this stuff. And it's an enormous amount of pressure. And, um, you know, my standard line about it is that it always makes me feel like the guy who wants to be both a veterinarian and a taxidermist, because that way you can promise you'll get your dog back no matter what. Um, but anyway, I was supposed to be preparing for it. And the thing I was going to be talking about was this idea that I need to sort of keep thinking about because I didn't get close to preparing for it, um, which is that um, both parties in a certain way, and not just the parties, but our institutions and our cultural generally, um, they all want to be in the opposition. Everyone wants to be a rebel. Everyone wants to be the outsider critiquing the system or the establishment or the powers that be or the patriarchy of the pale penis people or whatever it is. People um, want to be critics, right? They want to be outsiders. They want to have the um, the celebrity that comes from speaking truth to power. And I've, I've written and talked about a bunch of this stuff before. It's very close to, you know, the argument make about parties and also um, about the argument that Yuval makes in his book, um, A Time to Build. But, uh, you know, I mean, so examples are easy to come up with, right? I mean, of, of people, you know, as Yuval would put it, they use institution, you know, and it, what an institution is supposed to do is shape your character right? It's supposed to bend your character towards the good of the institution and as a result, improve your character in certain specific ways. The best example of this, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but the best example of this um, might be the Boy Scouts or uh, the Marines, right? You go into the Marines, a damn hippie, a come out a Marine. It teaches you honor and duty and respect and punctuality and, and a dozen other things, right? Um, and you can, when you start thinking about institutions that way, uh, from, you know, nursery schools and churches to synagogues to little league teams, uh, you can kind of see what I'm getting at is that, that these institutions need to help mold your character for the good of the institution. And that gives you a sense of how you lend yourself over to the institution and you're making a meaningful contribution to the institution. And what's changed, as you've all, you know, writes about in his book, is that increasingly people are using institutions' platforms to perform on, right? You know, whatever, whatever you think of Colin Kaepernick's underlying issues or arguments, 
he used the NFL as a platform for his own agenda. Bernie Sanders has been using the de- has used the Democratic <coughs> presidential primaries for his own agenda, even though he's not a Democrat. Donald Trump, same. Um, you know, you can look around, and it's so much of what celebrity. You know, other if you're not an actor, um, it's it's so much of where people derive their celebrity from is being rebel of using the institutions that they belong to to get attention for themselves. And even though I said, you know, if you're not an actor, but actors too, um, uh, you know, it is amazing how so many actors at, you know, the award shows, they get up there and they pee on the rest of America from a great height using their fame uh, for their own sort of self-aggrandizement, their own sort of elevated sense of self-virtue, their own self-promotion. So, I mean, that's an argument I made. Actually, I gave a speech along those lines um, at AI two years ago at World Forum. That's one of the reasons why it's been in my head so much is I spent so much time thinking about all of that. Um, but there's this other problem, right? It's not just that people are using these institutions. It's that um, that they can use these institutions as platforms to get power or to get control of the institutions and they still want to be outsiders. And I'm sorry, the best example of this is Donald Trump. He runs the government, right? Or at least the executive branch. He is in charge and yet he constantly plays these games with the federalism, not federalism, total authority, not total authority, uh, the deep state, the justice department, where he is constantly playing the pundit you know, the angry Twitter pundit criticizing what the government is doing when he's the guy where the buck supposedly stops. And it's not just Trump. You know, you have senators and congressmen who would rather be lobbyists of the executive branch than actually make legislation, you know, and make laws, which is their actual job. And everyone wants to be an outsider, even when they're insiders. Uh, you know, Sarah Palin was a pretty good example of this. And, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty bullish at first about Sarah Palin, but, you know, her problem was that she ended up not doing her homework and doing your homework is, you know, important as I was talked about last week, but it was very telling that she said that, you know, her real life dream was to be, what was it? A sportscaster or a, something like that. You know, she wanted to be a broadcast journalist and, she very quickly, because it's so much easier to be a carping critic, um, fell into this, you know, uh, precursor of Trumpism, lamestream media stuff, um, rather than actually putting her nose to the grindstone. Uh, you know, it's interesting in, in, on Capitol Hill and in think tank world, there is, um, all of this legal work that Congress is super interested in, um, that, or I should say, Republican Congress is super interested in, you know, the non-delegation stuff and all of these kinds of things that we've been talking, conservative been talking about for 40 years, but they're like the dogs that car, caught the car. They don't know how to drive. They don't know how to actually do the stuff. They don't know how it would work. They don't know how to implement it. All they know how to do is sort of be pundits and complain or, or, hold the, you know, the good as an enemy of the perfect. 
Now, obviously, it's a problem on the left, too. And, um, and when you look at, when, what's sort of fascinating to me is, so I saw this piece by that guy Charlie Kirk the other day where he's boasting about how he's, his gr- turning point isn't going to take PPP money because uh, they believe in free markets and they believe in limited government. And look, we had these arguments and discussions inside of the dispatch and we concluded that we weren't going to take the money, but it wasn't, you know, I mean, yeah, there's something weird about taking money when you believe in free government, free, you know, free um, markets and limited government, all that kind of stuff, and then taking a handout. But um, ultimately, you know, that was part of our reluctance, but our real reluctance was, was we just didn't think it was, you know, we didn't think it was a good look. We didn't think it was particularly ethical necessarily. I mean, we've lost revenue because we had to cancel a bunch of event stuff, but we're actually in pretty good shape. Thanks to, thanks to listeners like you, particularly if you're a paid member. Um, and we just thought there were people who deserved it more, um, that needed it more. And we said, you know, maybe down the road, if there's some other thing that we're better suited for, or our need is greater, we'll apply for it. But that's fine. I, I, I have no problem. I, I honestly have no problem with people taking the money or not taking the money if they're doing it for honest need. And we didn't have the kind of hardship. We weren't looking to lay off people. We were still looking to hire people. So we just thought it wasn't right for us. But here's Kirk, who is by any measure one of the most pro-Trump, Trump is always right, apologists, cheerleaders, um, out there. I mean, I don't think, I, I'm not trying to criticize him, the guy. I just think it's factually true. And I don't know anybody who has watched him on the stage would disagree. And he writes this piece that has all of these non sequiturs and irrelevant things about other forms of government overreach. And then con- comes to this conclusion that he has to take this principled rebellious stand in not taking government money. And the one thing that's not in there anywhere is Donald Trump. It's just not mentioned. He's not, you know, it's, it, there's no hint you would, if, if, if you didn't, if you just got off a, got out of a, you know, a bunker and you hadn't followed any of the news, you'd have no idea that this guy was criticizing the signature legislative initiative of this administration in dealing with the pandemic and the crashing economy. And there's this weird thing throughout sort of Trump world now where it kind of reminds me, you know, of Woodrow Wilson. And what I mean by that is when you read books about Woodrow Wilson and things start going really, really bad, I should say books about Woodrow Wilson, but the Woodrow Wilson era um, by sort of mainstream liberal historians. And when, <coughs> when things start going bad, the Palmer raids, the censorship, all this kind of stuff, Wilson just kind of disappears, right? This is stuff that happened while Wilson happened to be around and alive, but he doesn't get blamed for it. You know, it was the... Attorney General Palmer or was George Creel of the Committee for Public Information or Herbert Hoover, who was the food czar imposing all of these things or whoever. It's all of these other actors who are responsible um, or it's the American government generally that is responsible, but not Wilson himself. And so when you hear, I mean, I, I you know, when I listen to Bill Bennett or a lot of these guys, you know, beating the hell out of the the quarantines and the lockdowns, um, particularly a couple of weeks ago, you'd have no idea that 
these quarantines and lockdowns were in accord with Donald Trump's, as, as Mike Pence put it, the president's guidelines, right? This is the president's initiative. He wants to claim credit for all the successes of it, but he talks about the, the, the shutdowns as if it's all, anytime the shutdowns are unpopular or the stay-at-home orders are unpopular, that's the governor's doing that, not him. Um, and you get the same sort of, you know, bizarre uh, schizophrenia, for want of a better word, from all of these, you know, leading, you know, pro-Trump pundits who, you know, either it's Fauci who's doing this, he has no power to do any of this stuff. Um, so it's either like, it's either that Fauci has, has somehow beguiled or ensorcelled Trump into doing these things and that, therefore, if you just fired Fauci, Trump would do the right thing. Or in this case with Charlie Kirk, you know, so, you know, which is it? Is it, is it that the Trump administration is doing great stuff to fight the, um, the economic consequences of the pandemic or not? But to, to go and like freelance your, you know, your conservative street cred um, as this sort of rebellious independent thinker by refusing to take this money and then going straight out and bragging about it without even offering a sentence criticizing Donald Trump for signing it into law, for negotiating with Congress to get it, for bragging about it daily, is the plan bad or not? Right. If and if, if it's bad, why did the supposedly, you know, if Charlie Kirk is to believe Donald Trump is a champion of capitalism, why did he go with this plan? I actually support Donald Trump on this. I am the Trump supporter in this debate. I support the president's guidelines in terms of the public health stuff. I mean, I think we're at a phase now where we need to start, you know, rolling some of it back. This is not sustainable for the long term. So I'm totally open to all of that. Um, the whole point of these lockdowns was to bend the curve so that we didn't destroy our healthcare system. I think we can safely say we've done that and that we need to ease off of this a little bit for the economy because people need to eat and pay the rent. Um, so I'm open to all those debates, but my point is, is like, I supported Trump for what he did in terms of, uh, issuing these guidelines. Uh, I think his, Travel ban to China has been wildly exaggerated, but it was the right thing to do. Um, I supported the PPP program. Um, I, as I said, have I said all along, I think that in the future we'll look back on it and find all sorts of things that were wrong about it or misguided or implemented poorly. But that's sort of the nature of the beast when you're trying to do something this fast. But I supported the program. So did Jim Pethokoukas, who's no huge fan of Donald Trump. And so I kind of resent this idea that somehow the people who are going out there um, criticizing, like Bill Bennett and some other people, criticizing the lockdown stuff or criticizing the effort to fix the economic problems um, because of the lockdown stuff, they're attacking this amorphous thing. They're saying, we did this, or the government did this, or occasionally Fauci did this. Is, is President Trump in charge or not? And if you've been such a huge supporter of Donald Trump's all along, um, why aren't you supporting him now? And if you're not supporting what he's actually doing in this crisis, why are you absolving him or just going by the wayside and not mentioning him? He's either, if, you're, if, you're, if, if everything works out fantastically in two months and the economy has this huge V-shaped roar back 
and, you know, we conclude that we stopped millions of people from dying, these very same people are going to give Donald Trump an enormous amount of credit for it. But right now, they disagree with what Trump is doing, what the Trump administration is doing, but they will not criticize Trump for it because they're afraid to. Well, at least I think they're afraid to. And the problem with that is that when you're not willing to actually criticize the people making the decisions, you open up this vast gulf of nonsensical, conspiratorial, ridiculous other explanations, which would make sense, right? If, you, if the one conclusion you can't come to is that two plus two equals four, you're going to come up with some crazy ass to explain what two plus two equals. And they're all going to be wrong because two plus two only equals four. And if Donald Trump is the president of the United States, if he's implementing these things, if he is uh, signing this legislation, negotiating this legislation, touting this legislation, implementing this legislation, and, and also these guidelines, if he's doing all of these things and you don't like it, but you refuse to criticize him, you're going to come up with these cockamamie explanations about how America is a bunch of cowards. As some people are arguing, oh, we're just all a bunch of Nancy boys who are afraid of little germs. You can't even see them. Um, or that, um, you know, that Anthony Fauci is this, you know, sinister Svengali working behind the scenes, doing things that he has no power to do. Um, and it's bonkers. And, and, and so, you know, and I, and I think Trump's criticism of his own government and his own policies is bonkers, too. Um, but when you have these people who are the heads of institutions, I mean, Charlie Kirk's the head of, what is it, Turning Point USA? You know, Bill Bennett is an institution unto, unto himself. There are lots of these people. They, they want to be critics of something, but they just can't actually be the critic of the prime mover of the things that they dislike. And it creates this otherworldly, nonsensical garbage. And, you know, I think this is, but I think this is just a general problem in the culture, everybody on, you know, everybody on college campus is told that they need to be a rebel. Everyone, you know, as I, I think I've talked about this before, I talk about it on, in book talks all the time. We, you know, we glorify people who go with their own gut, go with their instincts. Um, and no one wants to be the grown up, except for Mitch Daniels, um, who takes over an institution and Mike DeWine maybe takes over an institution takes responsibility for the institution. And when the institution or the organization goes wrong, says that ultimately, you know, is my fault. And I think this is a huge problem throughout the culture is that it's, it's just more fun to be the rebel and the critic and nothing's ever anybody's fault because nobody's actually willing to take, I shouldn't say nobody because I just listed a couple people, but too many people are unwilling to take um, ownership of their actual responsibilities. And instead, they want to be these free, roving, pundit, cultural critics, economic critics, media critics, whatever it is. Um, and I think that's a huge source of our dysfunction in our culture. Uh, I don't know how I got on. Another source of our dysfunction in our culture, I talk about a bit in today's G-File, which I'll talk about briefly, um, the fur, I didn't write about this bigger point, but, um, the first piece, um, the first book review I ever got published, um, was something I wrote for the, the, the glorious public interest, uh, 
20 something years ago, 1995 or something like that. And it was a review of this terrible book called Generation at the Crossroads by a guy named Paul Rogat Loeb. And um, it was one of the sort of touchstone things that got me on my hatred of generational stereotyping and generational politics and all of that. But he had a chapter in there on, uh, you know, he went from one campus to another campus chronicling the historic stories of uh, young student rebels fighting the system, right? That was the whole thing is that young people as a class, as a group are rebels. And it was the first time I encountered other than on my own college campus, um, anything about sort of campus rape crimes, uh, we're not rape, hate crimes and, and, and accusations of rape and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the, but the chapter on, uh, this racial hate crime at Emory, it went on for, I don't know, 20, 30 pages talking about this girl whose room had been vandalized with racial epithets and how terrible it was and how she helped organize along with other student activists, you know, all sorts of awakening and glorious changes in school administration and created, you know, um, programs and whatnot to deal with hate on campus. And you only find out near the end of the chapter that she faked it, that she did it all herself. There was no hate crime. And he dismisses this out of hand and says, that doesn't really matter because look at all the wonderful things we got out of it. And um, the reason I bring it up is because it was in my head after writing the G-File is that, uh, um, you know, the believe all women thing, as I write, is a classic, they call Mott and Bailey uh, argument or claim. Uh, Mott and Bailey claim is a kind of uh, debater's fallacy where you make some wild sweeping statement um, and if you don't get questioned on it, you let it stand as your actual position. But then if you get questioned on it, you retreat back to a far more defensible claim and say, oh, I was just saying, you know, X. I wasn't saying 10X. Um, you know, so like, uh, you know, if I say, you know, only gay, you know, only gay people have poodles, uh, uh, someone would say, well, that's ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. Um, and then I say, well, look, you know, all I was really saying is, you know, I know a couple gay guys who like poodles and gay guys kind of seem to like poodles more than non-gay guys. Again, not a great argument. I'm not trying to be homophobic here. It just came into my head. Um, uh, and the point is, is that it's, that that's not what you said at first. You made a sweeping statement at first and then when pressed, you fall back and make it sound like the other person is being unreasonable for disagreeing with you. And it happens in politics all the time. So during Kavanaugh and before Kavanaugh, you know, the position was believe all women, women don't lie, people don't make these things up. And now because they're on defense because of the Biden stuff, they fall back uh, into the mott to defend um, a much more defensible proposition, which is that uh, these kinds of accusations should be taken seriously. And I agree with that. I do, as a rule, think that, that, should, that those sorts of accusations should be taken seriously. But there's, a, and, and I hope I don't get in too much trouble for the column, um, but there's a bit of a problem even with that. I mean, that, it's definitely, as a rule of thumb, it is true. You should take them seriously. 
Um, but part of the problem with that is that if you actually, the part of the problem is that if you take these kinds of things seriously, you are going to do things that piss off people who say believe all women, right? Because to take it seriously means you have to skeptically question the accuser. You have to investigate the allegation. You have to cast doubt if there is doubt on what they're saying and ask them to explain inconsistencies in their story. And there are people out there who think that's cruel. People who think that's, uh, you know, denying someone their truth or denying or, or, or in harming their self-esteem. And it sounds rough, but the short answer to that is, okay, maybe, but too bad. Um, and so part of the point I wanted to make in the G-File, which is sort of gets back to the public interest thing, um, is that in this culture, we sort of, in the same way we celebrate the sort of, the sort of trite poser rebelliousness that I was talking about earlier, right? Where everyone's the pundit, nobody's in charge. Um, we also celebrate victimhood. And this is another one of these things that is sort of deep in human nature that um, is pre-modern in a lot of ways, is that we hold up certain people as representative of a category or whatever, and if they are preyed upon or treated unfairly, we take personal offense through some weird psychological transitive property. And so, but in any culture, it's sort of like in economics, anything that you subsidize, you'll get more of. Anything that you tax, you'll get less of. Um, as a culture, we celebrate victimology. We subsidize it culturally. We reward it. And so we get more victimology than we have victims often. Um, Jesse Smollett was behaving as a sort of rational actor when he staged that hate crime against himself because he made a bet that if he got away with it, it would redound to his benefit. He would get his contract renewed with Fox. He would um, become famous as this victim, this brave victim who um, you know, paid the price for speaking truth to power, yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, and that kind of thing happens quite a lot, particularly on college campuses where you get young people who um, really want to feel validated, really want to feel important. And so uh, one way to do that, one way to buy validation on the cheap is to proclaim yourself some kind of victim. And that's why you get a lot of hoaxes on college campuses. Um, it's not always done explicitly politically, although I think that's a big part of it. Sometimes it's just a cry for help, right? And just sort of a cry for attention. Um, but it's a real phenomenon. And um, that's, and it can be wildly distorting to our own politics because, because this is a problem on the right too. The right loves its victims. You know, those Covington kids were treated badly, but my God, you would think that this was... Um, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand because of some YouTube, some doctored YouTube videos. Um, there are a whole bunch of people, you know, I, I, you can't watch Tucker Carlson or Fox and Friends for more than a couple of days, and I don't, you know, when I do watch, without stumbling on somebody who was, you know, uh, who was victimized because they wore a MAGA hat or something. Um, you know, Christian conservatism 
is this, you know, conservative Christians are discriminated against as a cultural matter. They are, um, there is a lot of anti-Christian bigotry in our country. And as I say in the, in the GVAL, there's also a lot of racism and sexism in the country. Just because this stuff exists doesn't, just because there are, there are hoaxes and all this kind of stuff doesn't mean there aren't real problems, real reservoirs of social pathologies that these things don't feed off of. But we're sort of in this place as a culture where um, everyone, you know, it's, it's, it's like victim rebels or rebel victims. People want to sort of have all of the glory and, and um, celebrity and sympathy um, and support that comes with uh, either being a rebel who then obviously is going to be criticized for speaking truth to power or being a victim, um, which confer confers some kind of nobility. And um, I don't know really how to conclude this, but it's just this thing that's sort of in my head right now. Anyway, I've got to go. I'm going to go see Charlie Cook at a safe distance. People seem to really like our podcast, which I did too. I'm always a fan of Charlie's. Um, and uh, opinion seems to be wildly divergent about uh, the new theme music and the new artwork seems to be more pro artwork people than pro music people. Um, we're taking it all under advisement. As we keep saying, this is a work in progress. We're, tr we're figuring out all sorts of stuff as we go. Um, but, uh, I really appreciate all the support from people. Uh, you know, if, if we didn't blow out our expectations on paid memberships to the dispatch, uh, we might've had to have take, taken PPP money. Um, but we didn't, in part because of the support of, I hate sounding like PBS, because of the support of people like you. Um, and speaking of sounding like PBS, yes, one of the things we're working on is getting swag. Um, we'll figure all that out uh, in the days and weeks and months to come. So anyway, thanks all for listening, and I will see you next time. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.